Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We are drawing near to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And as we come to the conclusion of this message, Jesus, in summary, is giving us both incentives to follow his instructions in this sermon and also warnings for those who reject these instructions. And I don't know of a more sobering passage in all of the Bible than the one we have in front of us today. I'm going to read, uh, starting earlier than my text for today, I'm going to start in verse 15 of Matthew 7 and read to verse 23. And this is the word of the Lord, Matthew 7, starting in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, these are no doubt some of the most weighty and sobering words in all of your word. God, I pray that we would have the honesty to face this passage, that we would not divert our eyes because it may in some ways seem unsettling or disturbing or threatening. God, I pray that we would look long and hard into these tough truths because these tough truths are written for our good. They're ultimately written for our joy because the last thing that any of us would want is to be self-deceived about our standing with the God who is. The thought of us coming to face you and having misunderstood where we are to be deceived about our own salvation is the most terrifying thought that there is. And so these words of warning are not meant simply to sober us, but they are meant to sound an alarm. And for those of us who need to hear this message, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, you'd give us eyes to see, that we would take these words with absolute seriousness as they were said. And I pray for any who right now in this room or under the sound of my voice is in this very moment deceived about his or her own salvation, that I pray that even now in these moments that there would be an awakening, that you would awaken lost people who profess faith and that you would alert them to the danger and that you would encourage them, motivate them to flee into the arms of the Savior, Jesus Christ, and that they would experience full and free forgiveness even now. 
I pray that you do a work right now, examining and exposing our hearts for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read today's text that is so brief again right now for us. Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. I want us to hear it clearly. Jesus says, these are the words of Jesus, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, about a half a century ago, said this about this passage. He said, these surely are in many ways the most solemn and solemnizing words ever uttered in this world, not only by man, but even by the Son of God himself. How often, I wonder, have we considered them or heard a sermon on them? Must we not all plead guilty to the fact that though we claim to believe the whole of Scripture, in practice we frequently deny much of it by ignoring it, simply because it does not pander to our flesh or because it disturbs us. But if we really believe that this is the Word of God, we must consider it all. The sermon today is about false conversion. And I'm going to walk through six marks of a false convert to Christianity. This passage is particularly startling because of what it says. I mean, even on the surface of this text, it is stunning what Jesus says here. Let me note very clearly, in this text, Jesus is not talking about atheists. He's not talking about Buddhists or Hindus or Muslims. I know that those were, many of those religions were still to come, but he was not talking about other religions. He is talking only about a group of people who call Jesus in this life Lord. That's who Jesus is speaking to. He's talking only in this text to professing Christians. He's not, he's not talking about secular people. He's talking about church people in this text. It is amazing here, the description of the people that Jesus talks about. They don't even just call him Lord. You know, in, in the Hebrew language and in Greek, if you want to emphasize something, R.C. Sproul taught us this in his Holiness of God series, if you're aware of what that is. One of the ways the biblical authors uh, emphasize things is not by using what we, we have today, right? We've got boldface, we've got italics, we've got underline, we've got all caps, we've got all kinds of different ways where we can emphasize what we are saying when we are writing an email or, or whatever we might be doing. But back in, in these days, what you did was you repeated what you said. The angels say before God's throne, God is not holy, they don't say even that he is holy, holy. They say he is holy, holy, holy. To take something to the third degree is pretty dramatic in Scripture. But here, these individuals call Jesus not Lord. They call Jesus Lord, Lord. Now, the re repetition of the word twice should tell you something about the passion involved from these people. These are not simply people who once in a while went to church. These are not people who once in a while talked about Jesus here or there. These are people who, if you stop them on the street, would tell you, Jesus is my Lord. He is Lord, Lord. That's what these individuals are saying. Here's something else we learn about these individuals. Look again at the text, verse 22. Not only do they call Jesus Lord twice, but we're told of three different kinds of works that they did. They, number one, prophesied in the name of Jesus. Number two, 
no, no, notice, it doesn't say we prophesied in the name of the angel Moroni, which is what a Mormon might say, right? That's what Joseph Smith might say. I have a prophecy from the angel Moroni. That's not what it says. These are prophecies in the name of Jesus, not in the name of Muhammad or whatever it might be. These are in the name of Jesus. Number two, they claim at least to cast out demons in Jesus' name. And number three, they claim to have done many miracles or mighty works in the name of Jesus. And Jesus looks at these individuals and Jesus says, I will declare to them, verse 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let me just say from the very beginning here, we must not elevate spiritual gifts above graces. These individuals had some kind of looked like spiritual gifting. In other words, public abilities. Man, we, we love public gifting in our country, do we not? We love personality. We love captivating speakers. Oh, man. That's what, that's what social media domin is dominated by, people who are just captivating in their personality. You can't stop listening. They're so interesting. We elevate public gift so highly. This person is so skilled at blank. And people with very high skill levels in the church are often elevated prematurely to high positions of authority. Some of the biggest crash and burn stories of the last 20 years in evangelicalism, evangelicalism came from extraordinarily spiritually gifted individuals who did not have many graces. People who turned out they were misusing church money by the hundreds of thousands, or they were sleeping around, or it turns out there were bullies behind the scenes. Well, these people had unbelievable public, public personas, unbelievable gifts they were the kind of people here. They, they, they worked wonders. They were prophesying in Jesus' name, doing great mighty works, casting out demons, public gifts. Man, we love public gifts. But yet, did they have the graces of the Holy Spirit in their life? No. And in God's view, God does care about all those things. He gives us our natural gifting, our spiritual gifting, and all of us in this room have various gifts. None of us are alike identically. We all have diverse gifts. Even those who feel like they have few gifts have gifts from God and are valuable to the body of Christ. But hear me. Our gifts are not more important than our character. Our gifts are not to be the most important thing about us. Our character is of vital significance. And these individuals, although publicly gifted and claiming much about the lordship of Jesus, in their heart of hearts, Jesus says that they were lawless. They were without God's law. They were, in the big term, antinomian, to be against or not obeying God's namas, his law. They were against the law. They were not truly following God in their heart of hearts. So I want to walk through, and some of these I'll spend more time on, some of them less time on, but I want to walk through six marks of a false convert. And I'm going to begin by using the sermon Jesus is preaching right here because as he's concluding the sermon, wouldn't we expect he's concluding things he's already said in the sermon? When you reach the conclusion, you don't usually introduce a lot of new material. Usually you are summarizing what has already come before. Let's just flip briefly to Matthew 5, the very beginning of the sermon. And this is Mark number 1 of a false convert. Number 1, the Beatitudes do not truly characterize your life. Number one, the Beatitudes, these are the opening comments of the sermon, the Beatitudes do not truly characterize your life. Now let me just mention a few here. I don't, I don't want to walk through all of this right now, but these are very important to think about. 
Poverty of spirit is the mark of a Christian. It is not the mark of a false convert. To be poor in spirit means this. You know, because you've spent time in God's presence, you know that you in and of yourself deserve the lake of fire. You know that you deserve to be cut off from God's goodness. You know that you deserve nothing good from God. You know you deserve damnation. That is what you deserve. And it creates poverty of spirit, a brokenness over your sin. That's why Jesus says we mourn. We are meek because we are humbled by our sinfulness. We mourn over our sinfulness. Now listen, not all of us emotionally are wired in the same way. When some people mourn over their sin, there are literal tears. And when some people mourn over their sin, there are not literal tears. It doesn't matter whether or not you have literal tears on your face. The question is, is there a grief in your heart over the sins of your life, a brokenness and a poverty of spirit that is truly humbling to you? You know, I don't want to allegorize Scripture here, but at the risk of allegorizing here, Jacob wrestles with the angel. Remember this in Genesis? Jacob wrestles with the angel, and he won't let him go until the angel blesses him. The angel says, what's your name? Last time he said his name, he lied. He said it was his brother's name to get the blessing. Now he says, what's your name? My name's Jacob. And the sun begins to come up, and the angel says, you got to let me go. You cannot see the face of God and live. And Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And the angel touched his hip socket. His hip goes out of joint. He continues wrestling. This is a very intense moment. And in the end, he prevails. He receives the blessing. And that next morning, as he goes to meet his brother Esau, he is walking with a limp because of the the injury that he received from wrestling with God. And again, not to allegorize, but there's a sense in which if you have truly met and wrestled with and encountered God, you always walk with a limp from then on. Does that make sense? You, you, you walk having encountered God and you are different. There is a humbling effect that God's presence has in our lives that creates mourning over sin and it creates a meekness. And look at verse six, a hungering and thirsting after righteousness. See, this is what the false convert cannot say. The false convert cannot say that there is a real hunger and a thirst for righteousness. They might put on an outward show, but to say that there is an actual passion, a hunger and thirst to be more like Christ, truly in our heart of hearts, is that true? Is that true of you? Can you say truly, I have a hunger, a thirst. It goes up and down. It can wax and wane. But is there a real desire, a a longing to be more like Jesus in your life? And Jesus also mentions a joy in the face of adversity. Is there a deep joy that we have in the presence of God, even in the midst of of the adversities of life. So a false convert does not have those characteristics. Point number two, mark number two. You obey God superficially and selectively to please man. Marks of a a false convert. Number two, you obey God superficially and selectively to please man. This is where Jesus says, okay, when he's talking to the Pharisees in chapter 5, he says, okay, you guys avoid murder because that's public and scandalous, but in your heart, you have hatred that eats you up. Irritability and bitterness toward others just controls you. But no, you don't actually act out publicly in murder. Okay, you might avoid adultery, but your heart may be consumed by lust. Is there just a superficiality to our obedience? Do we just kind of do the kind of obedience we do, just kind of get away with it? Well, whatever we can get by with so we don't lose our reputation publicly, but inwardly. Are we fighting sin inwardly at the level of the heart, or are we just fighting sin at the level only of behavior? A false convert can control some of his or her outward morality, 
selectively and to a degree, but their heart is left unchanged. They honor me with their lips. That's outward. But their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, Jesus says. How about selectively? We pick the, the outward morality that we can perform on our own effort, but we don't obey all of what God has commanded us. And we do it to please man. In chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount, remember the three big things Jesus mentions, giving, praying, and fasting. Verses 1 through 18, giving, praying, and fasting. And he says the false convert does what? The false convert, by the, please don't miss this. The false convert is not the person who doesn't give, doesn't pray, and doesn't fast. Jesus is not contrasting in chapter 6 those who pray and those who don't pray. He's not contrasting those who fast and those who don't fast. He's not contrasting those who give to the poor and those who do not. No, no, no. He's contrasting in that group. All, everyone he's contrasting does all those things. The true convert and the false convert pray. One to be seen by others and one in the privacy of their closet so that their father can see. They both give. One to be seen and one the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. One fasting to be seen, disfiguring the face to show off that fasting. The other one doing it privately before God. So Jesus is not saying those, some do outward obedience, some don't. He's saying the motivation for the false convert at rock bottom is the glory that comes from man and not the glory that comes from God. At the bottom for a false convert, all the Christian performance, all the outward morality is meant to be seen by man. And Jesus says, you will have your reward in this life, not in the next life. That is the mark of a false convert. I won't tell the whole story, but you know the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas gave generously. He sold land, gave the proceeds to the apostles. Ananias and Sapphira thought, wow, you know what? Barnabas is getting praise for what he did. That's not why he did it, but he did get praise for giving all that money. Well, you know what? Let's sell some of our property and let's lie. Let's say we're giving all of it when we're really holding back, say, 30% of our proceeds, and we're going to keep a little bit for ourselves, but lie and say we're giving all of it. And what were they doing? They were practicing their outward righteousness to be praised by others. And they are struck dead by God in that very scene in Acts chapter 5. Mark number 3 of a false convert. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1, and I will tell you what this mark is. 1 Corinthians 1, the gospel is folly to you, not captivating. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the gospel is folly, not captivating. Read a few verses. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly, foolishness, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Look at chapter 2, verse 14, the very next page, chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person, that's an unbeliever, 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are folly, foolishness to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And do you see here? Here's a test. The false convert may believe the facts of the gospel are true. 
A false convert can believe truly that Jesus was God incarnate. A false convert can believe Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life. A false convert can believe Jesus died a substitutionary death on the cross, that he was buried, that he died in our place for our sins, that he rose from the dead, that he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead, and that the only way to be saved is by repentance and faith in Christ. A false convert can believe all that. I know that because Satan believes all that, and he's not saved. A false convert can believe all the facts of the gospel, and yet in their, in their emotional center, in, in their affections, they, they feel as though this is folly. This is boring. This is not captivating. This is not something that's exciting. This is not riveting. This is not something I get up in the morning about and get excited about. This does not capture my affections. I mean, I can go watch a movie and I can get excited. I can go watch, I can go to a concert. I can go hang out with friends. I can go do some fun activity and it is exciting. But the thought of thinking about the gospel again is folly. It's boring. It's not captivating. I know it should be, but my affections are just always dead, dull, and lifeless when it comes to the things of Jesus. I can talk about my, my finances all day long, you might say. I can talk about my new job. I could, I could bore you for the next five hours talking about my new job and all the ins and outs of my career. I could talk to you about who I'm dating or my marriage. I could talk to you about my kids and how they're doing. But man, when it comes to the gospel, it's just not an interesting topic of conversation for me. The false convert is turned off by rich and affectional conversation about Jesus and holiness. It's just not what I want to hear. Please talk about something else. Let's change the subject. It is folly. It is foolishness. It is not captivating. Mark number four. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10 to your right, or no, to your left from 1 Corinthians. Romans chapter 10. I've got a question about this in the group me for the discussion tonight at community groups. Uh, I want to hear, I would love to hear some of your thoughts about this passage, but this passage is God-inspired, it is true, and it is gloriously true, and yet I think it has been widely misused. Look, look at Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, let, let me get, this is point number four. The lordship of Jesus is a mantra, not a reality. The, the lordship of Jesus is a mantra, just a saying. It is not a reality. Now, I, I grew up in church. I grew up in a wonderful church with a wonderful Christian family. I have tremendous parents. Uh, what I'm about to tell you is not the fault of anybody around me. It was just my own fault. But I will tell you, I know what it is like to be a false convert because I spent about 10 or 11 years of my life from about age five to about age 16, I spent as a false convert. I know uh, the ins and outs of what it is like. Even as a young person, I was very aware of my faith in Christ or what I thought was my faith in Christ. And I would have turned to passages like this very one to validate my false profession of faith. And I would use this very text and text like it. I would say this, the, the, the passage says, if I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. Well, I believe it. I have no doubt. I believe Jesus is truly Lord. I, I believe that. I say it out loud. I'll tell you. I, I believe Jesus is Lord. I even tried to evangelize a friend of one of my brothers when this person was at our house one time. I was not even a convert, but I was evangelizing at the time, okay? So I, I did. I, I tried to share my faith with, with several people. 
Number two, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Listen, I believed really in the bodily resurrection of Jesus when I was young. I, I truly believed that Jesus had bodily raised from the dead and that he was in heaven, and I was not yet a genuine convert to Christianity. And I thought this verse was giving me assurance that I was a Christian. Let me tell you, the lordship of Jesus is not a mantra, it is a reality. It is one thing to say the words, Jesus is Lord, which by the way, Satan will one day say. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess, including demons and non-Christians. Everybody will confess with their tongue, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That does not mean that they are all saved, right? So I, can, I believed in the lordship of Jesus like a mantra. I thought it was intellectually true. But if you looked at my life, my life was not living under the lordship of Jesus. Lord just means you call the shots, your boss, right? You're, you're, you're in control. And I was in no way submitting to the reality of the lordship of Jesus, but I believed it was true intellectually. It was so obvious to other people that I was not a Christian. Jerry Edgar's brother knew I was probably not a Christian. He was teaching me at the time in middle school and high school. And one day, Mike Edgar, Jerry's brother, who we, st- we now teach together, we teach Bible together, this is the irony of life. And at the time, he was my Bible teacher around those days. And there was one day, I was probably in ninth grade, 14, 15 years old, and uh, we're in the gymnasium at school. I still remember it crystal clear. He takes me aside. I call him Coach Edgar. I still call him Coach Edgar a lot of the time. He takes me aside. Coach Edgar takes me aside. And he, he says, he, he's troubled. I, I've been suspended from school. I'd, I'd been doing worse things he didn't know about at the time uh, that I was getting, getting away with. I was getting in trouble all the time at school. I, there was no, no submission to the Lordship of Jesus in my life. Uh, it was a mantra. It was not reality. I did not love the Lordship of Jesus. I did not thrill at the thought of obeying Jesus. I just did what I could get by with without getting in too much trouble. Well, then Mike Edgar takes me aside and he just gently, he says, Mark, you know, how are you doing spiritually? What are you trying to, what are you trying to say here? That I'm, I'm doing fine. He said, well, you know, I've just, I've got some concerns. You know, I don't remember his exact words, but kind of, I've got some concerns. Where, where is your walk with the Lord? Because there seem to be some troubling signs. And as soon as I got the sense that he might be even asking some questions about my salvation, I became furiously angry at him. I still remember, I walked away from the conversation. I went to a friend of mine and just blasted him to my friend. Who does he think he is? He's asking questions about my walk with the Lord. What does he think? Well, about three years later, I thanked him because I later became a Christian. About a year and a half later, I became a believer truly, and the Lord became Lord of my life. Listen, when it says here to confess Jesus as Lord, it doesn't mean intellectually say it's true. Every demon believes and knows Jesus is Lord, and they can say it. What do the demon-possessed people say when Jesus shows up in Mark 5? Here's the Holy One of God. Here he is. They know the truth doctrinally, but they don't love the truth. To be truly converted is to say Jesus is Lord. He's boss, and I love that he calls the shots. I delight in the fact that he is sovereign and that he is in control. I love the Lordship of Jesus. It is my delight to do your will, O God. That's the mark of a genuine convert. A false convert may know he's Lord, may say he's Lord, but it's a mantra. It's not reality. It's not something that is actually submitted to in real life. In Luke 6, 46, Jesus has this amazing line. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Mark number five of a false convert. I want you to turn with me to the book of James, to the right, James chapters one and two. I'm just gonna look at a few verses here. 
James chapter 1, just after the book of Hebrews, James chapter 1. Look with me at a few, few, few verses here, starting in verse 22. James chapter 1, verse 22. Point number five is your faith is dead, not living. Your faith, point number five, is dead, not living. What does that mean, that your faith is dead, not living? James 1, 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Just stop there. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It is very easy to be self-deceived. Here's what I mean. It is easy to sit in church or to read our Bibles and to have a head full of knowledge and information. We hear the word. And yet when it comes to loving the truth, obeying the truth, living in accordance with the truth, we can very easily fool ourselves. Because if I know right doctrine, but I'm not living in accordance with what I know, it is very easy to think I'm in a good place because I know the right answer. There used to be a member of our church, they moved away. Uh, uh, Jose Rodriguez was the name of the husband, and Shannon is his wife. They have a few kids now. Jose and Shannon uh, started coming to our church a number of years ago. Some, some of you know and remember them. They're wonderful people. And Jose would tell you his whole story. I think we have it on our, uh, online somewhere or on our podcast from years ago. He tells his story. But here's what happened. Shannon was a genuine believer. Jose was a false convert. We did not know that. I had no idea when I met him that he was a false convert. But he told me later he was a false convert. He started coming to our church as a false convert. And he was coming here. And he was part of a Bible study. And he was reading scripture. He had Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, which I think he'd read most of at the time as a false convert. He had, he'd read, he knew his doctrine really well. I mean, he could debate theology and he knew his stuff. He knew Bible verses. He knew all kinds of things. And he had a troubling relationship with the Lord. There was something wrong. He could just tell. He was increasingly sensing an awareness that something was wrong. And there was a night where, I think it was a Saturday night before church, he was deeply distressed about his walk with the Lord. He knew something was not right. He knew something was, was, was wrong. And this had been troubling him for months, but there was a Saturday night he could barely sleep. He could not go to sleep at night because he was thinking about the fact that what if I'm not a believer and where am I at with the Lord? And all these thoughts were coming and troubling him. The very next day he comes to church. I'll never forget this because he was sitting right up here in the front uh, I think it was on the very front row. And uh, he, we, we were in, in the service, Ephesians 1, that Scott just read for our prayer time. Ephesians 1 was read out loud in the service. And in the middle of reading, somewhere, somewhere toward the end of Ephesians 1, Jose just breaks down crying. And the service ends, and Jose is like over here just in a state of just emotionally, just absolutely uh, weeping and broken, and we're, we're not quite sure what's happening. Well, time goes by, and a, a couple days later, he makes it clear. He says, I think the Lord truly saved me during the reading of Ephesians 1, during that service, just the other day. And he tells his story, and his whole life began to change. What happened? What changed? His theology did not really change. His theology before and after basically stayed the same. He had good doctrine before and after, as far as I can tell, pretty much. What changed was this? Suddenly, for the first time, he loved the truth of God's word. It wasn't just a textbook. It wasn't just something he needed to know to get a, pass a test or to have some sort of doctrinal clarity. No, now he was loving the truth of what he read. He was delighting in it, and suddenly he was obeying it. He was wanting to submit to it and act in accordance with it. He had gone from a hearer only, deceiving himself, to now he was hearing and loving and obeying, and he was no longer in a state of self-deception. Verse 23 of James 1. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, 
He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Look with me at chapter 2 of James. I should look at a few verses here, maybe about three. James 2, starting verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Answer rhetorically is no. Look at verse 19. You believe that God is one. You're a monotheist, essentially. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The, 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 the demons know there's only one God. They believe that, and they shudder. And then look at verse 26, the last verse. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Would you say that your faith is a living and active thing? Or would you say your faith is largely in name only? A nominal faith. A faith that says the right thing, but does not actually act in accordance with what we believe. Okay, point number six. Point number six, you do not experience joy and anguish regarding how others are walking with Jesus. That's a mouthful. Say it again. You do not experience joy and anguish regarding how others are walking with Jesus. Explain what I mean. You don't experience joy and anguish regarding how others are walking with Jesus. You won't, don't, don't take time to turn to all these. I'll just mention a few verses. Second and third John are the two short little books in the New Testament, very brief, one chapter each. Listen to the fourth verse of both second John and third John. They're very similar. Second, the fourth verse of second and third John. Listen to this. Second John verse four. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as you were commanded by the Father. And third John, verse four, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And then here's Paul, Galatians 4, 19. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Okay, let me put those together. When John writes to a church that has a bunch of believers, he calls them children, the members of the church, he was probably 90 when he wrote this, so he calls everybody children, okay? He tells all the church, you children, these young believers compared to John, he hears that they're all walking in the truth, that these members are healthy, that they're walking in the truth. And what does John say? I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. The mark of a genuine believer is what gets you excited about your friends and loved ones and those you care about is when they are walking with Jesus, there's no better news than to hear that your child or your friend or your coworker or a student that you're working with, when you find out that they are walking closely with Jesus, it brings joy to you. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. A born-again person cannot be indifferent when they hear about the spiritual good of another. They, there's going to be excitement and joy. And the closer they are to you, the more excitement and joy you will feel. And the reverse should also be true. Paul says, I am in the pain of anguish until Christ is formed in you. He compares it to labor pains. I am in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. The Galatians were struggling. When Paul writes, they were struggling with false gospel and they were beginning to slip away and about to fall off into apostasy. 
And Paul says, my anguish for you, that you Christ would be formed in you again, that you would walk back closer to Christ, that you would not fall into false teaching, that you would line up closer with the true gospel, that is like the spiritual anguish and agony of labor pains. I am in anguish until Christ is essentially born in you. Christ is formed in you. And so here's the mark of a believer. A true believer rejoices when a fellow friend is walking with the Lord, and we have anguish and pain and grief when a friend is not walking with the Lord. In Romans 9, what does Paul say about his Jewish kinsmen according to the flesh, that amazing text? He says, I, I, I speak the truth in Christ, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. I could wish myself accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my kinsmen according to the flesh, my Jewish brothers. He says, I have unceasing anguish in my heart for them. In other words, when there are lost people in his life that he knows and loves, Paul says, I have continual anguish and grief. I long for their salvation. And that is the mark of a true believer. False converts don't have a lot of passion when it comes to how closely others are walking with the Lord. They might have some superficial emotion about it, but there is no deep joy or deep anguish when it comes to the spiritual well-being of those who are around us. Okay, I'm going to wrap up. Turn back to Matthew 7. Before I close, I want to make one last point here. Turn back to Matthew chapter 7. Let me just mention this in closing. One of the marks of a false convert is that our deepest loves and values never change. Our nature never changes. Just to give some examples. Judas Iscariot was never a Christian. Jesus didn't say in this passage, I used to know you, but I don't know you now. No one's losing their salvation in this text. I never knew you means you were never a genuine convert. Judas Iscariot was never actually transformed in his nature. But listen, Judas followed Jesus around for three years. He heard virtually every sermon Jesus preached in person. He saw Jesus' miracles in person. And according to Matthew 10, Judas himself performed mighty works, healings and miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit. Go read Matthew 10, the first 20 verses. Judas is named by name as one of the people performing miracles in the power of the Spirit. Yet we are told from beginning to end, Judas loved money more than Jesus from the beginning. His nature was left unchanged. His fundamental longing, his fundamental Lord was not Jesus. It was finances because we're told he was stealing money the whole time. And we're told at the end, he betrayed Jesus for money. Judas was never changed. Demas, uh, one of the workers with Paul, at the end in 2 Timothy, he in love with the present world forsook Paul. He loved the world underneath his Christianity. He loved the world most fundamentally his whole life. And finally it showed when the going got tough at the end. Simon the magician in Acts chapter eight. It says he believed in Jesus and he was baptized. This guy looks like he's a convert in Acts chapter eight. He was Simon the magician. He was all into mighty works and demonic miracles. And he was famous for his demonic ability to do either magic tricks or actual demonic miracles. It was probably real demonic miracles. I'm not sure, but he becomes a Christian. It sounds like he believes in Jesus and he gets baptized. And guess what? A few verses later, Peter says, may you perish with your money. What happened? Simon says, can I buy the power of miracles from you, the Holy Spirit? Can I buy the miracles of the Spirit from, for money? And Peter looks at him and goes, 
Essentially, you never were converted. This whole time you've been living for signs and miracles. This whole time, when you were not a Christian, you did it through demons. And now as a so-called Christian baptized member of a church in, in, there in, in, uh, in Samaria, you are now wanting the same thing. Your nature was never changed. You loved being famous for mighty works before your conversion and you after your conversion still love the same thing. May your money perish with you. You're trying to buy the Holy Spirit with money. You are still in the gall of bitterness and the bond of deceit. How about... Lot's wife in Sodom and Gomorrah. We're actually told that despite his flawed life, Lot was a believer. Second Peter 2 tells us he was a believer. But his wife apparently was not a believer. And Jesus says in Luke 17, remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Lot's wife was living married to a genuine believer. Lot's wife was married to a believer and she was living where she was, but her heart became knit to Sodom. And when she was asked to leave, she turned back because her heart was truly there in the city and she was destroyed, turned to a pillar of salt along with the city that was behind her. Other examples could be multiplied, but I want to end on a positive note here. I've got with me Charles Spurgeon, his autobiography. It's a great, one of the great works in Christian history. This is volume one, it's two volumes. And I just want to read a little excerpt after he, the day he was converted. Many of you know his conversion story. I will not rehearse it right now, but he was a teenager, about 15 or so. And the Lord sent him into a church he had never been to before. It was just about 15 people present. A visiting preacher had to preach and he had barely anything to say. He spoke for just 10 or 15 minutes. And in those, that little seemingly pitiful, pathetic sermon, one of the greatest preachers of all of history was converted. And here's what Spurgeon said about heading home that day after he'd been in five years in agony of soul seeking Christ, but unable to actually become a true believer. He knew he deserved hell, but finally the gates of mercy opened. And here's what Spurgeon writes, quote, the clock of mercy struck in heaven, the hour and moment of my emancipation for the time had come between half past 10 o'clock when I entered that chapel and half past 12 o'clock when I was back again at home, what a change had taken place in me. I had passed from darkness into marvelous light, from death to life. Simply by looking to Jesus, I had been delivered from despair and I was brought into such a joyful state of mind that when they saw me at home, they said to me, something wonderful has happened to you. And I was eager to tell them all about it. Oh, there was a joy in the household that day when all heard that the eldest son had found the Savior and knew himself to be forgiven. Bliss compared with which all earth's joys are less than nothing and vanity. Yes, I had looked to Jesus as I was and found in him my Savior. I, a lad, found the Lord of glory. And I can heartily say that one day of pardon sin was a sufficient recompense for the whole five years of conviction. Let's bow our heads together. I want to give you a moment to pray silently and deal with the Lord for a moment, and then I'm going to pray for us and we'll sing. Heavenly Father, 
I already feel as though this sermon fell far short of what this text requires, but I do ask, God, that in our weakness that you would use it. I really do pray, God, that someone right now listening who is a false convert in this moment would awaken to the horror of hell and how much we deserve it, to the all-sufficient glory and beauty of the cross and empty tomb, that Jesus beckons sinners to come. Let anyone who thirsts come without payment and take of the water of life. The spirit and the bride say, come, partake. God, I pray that even right now, you would convict a heart, multiple hearts, I pray, God, that the gospel that has been boring for years, perhaps, would radiate with glory, with power. That like Jose, weeping after a service a few years ago, I pray that even now someone would be broken over their sin, amazed by the grace of Jesus, that he would die for sinners like you and me, and that there would be joy that people would say, what a change has come over you. Something wonderful has happened to you and that you would be, we would be eager to tell all about it and that we would experience the joy compared with which all earth's joys look like emptiness and vanity compared to the joy that in this case was Spurgeon. The eldest son had come to know the Savior between half past 10 o'clock and half past 12 o'clock that day. God, I pray for any in this room who do not truly know you, that even in these next moments, that there would be regeneration, that there would be real repentance, that there would be great delight in Christ, and that as we sing, you would be at work. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.